Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibility. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Hi, Reedy. How are you? I'm very well. On top of the world. Couldn't be better. You? <laughs> uh, I would like to say that this week the weather is fine, but it's horrible here. It's getting really cold. So I think I need a trip down to South Africa to it's, warm up. It, it, it is splendid here. I was in Cape Town yesterday. It, it, it had been uh, quite bleak, I, I understand, in Cape Town. And I got lucky. And my colleagues, they were saying, oh, you brought the sunshine with you. It was one of the hottest days ever. It was stunning. Sorry about what you're experiencing there. Mm. Well, we, we were having our, our summer last week. And you didn't know what to do with it. Let's not forget that. Well, I tell you what, that will please the person who we were talking with last week who was talking about crunching ice and this compulsion to crunch ice. And do you remember I said I would have a bit of homework Mm. because the lady said, I feel compelled to crunch ice. And I said, oh, that's interesting, but I wasn't sure why that could happen. And then some very, very clever person called up and said, this could be because of anemia. Mm. And I said I hadn't heard that, but I speculated that it could be that people crunch ice if they have iron deficient anemia because one of the symptoms of iron deficient anemia is a sore edge to your mouth and a sore tongue. You get what's called glossitis and the the ice might make that better. Mm -hmm. I did some probing around and this is a a recognised association. Um, It's called um, pagophagy, which is literally Mm -hmm. (laughs) ice eating. And if people have this, there is an association with iron deficiency anemia and people did speculate, um, although it's not confirmed, that the reason people do it is because when you have iron deficiency anemia you do get glossitis and it might be that the ice makes that feel a bit more comfortable. Mm. So we're on the right lines and thank you to the very bright person who uh, did volunteer that suggestion. I'm very grateful. Stunning. Let's talk about the chemical that's keeping injured arteries open. Oh, yes. Well, one of the things that's really revolutionized the treatment of heart disease in the last 10 years or so is the whole concept of angioplasty. This is where, to open up a blocked artery, you thread a tiny cannula in either through the top of the leg or through an artery in the arm now, increasingly, and you go to the place in the blood vessel that has the blockage, you blow up a very small balloon and open up the vessel, and then you prop it open with a tiny wire cage called a stent. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very, very effective, and it means that people don't have to have major surgery in order to open up their chest, find the blocked artery, and plumb round it. The problem is that about one person in three who has this stenting procedure may then have a problem with the stent getting furred up or forming a blood clot inside it. Mm-hmm. And a group of scientists in Germany at the University of Munich, this is Christian Weber and his colleagues, they've published a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week where they have found that a certain type of white blood cell called a neutrophil can make a substance which is it's got quite a long name it's called catholicidin and what this chemical does is to prevent the furring up of arteries basically when an artery gets injured the neutrophils go to the injured site and they squirt out some of this chemical and this attracts other repairing cells in and stops this overgrowth that can block up the vessel what they've 
done next, having proved that that's the case, is to make a kind of stent that can elute or naturally secrete some of this substance for a while after it's implanted. And this means that if you put these stents in, and they've done this on experimental mice mm -hmm. so far, you can stop the stents furring up because it secretes the thing that the white blood cells would normally make in increased concentrations. This encourages repair and the sort of relining of the artery without the overgrowth and blood clotting forming that was complicating previous interventions so that's really good mm, mm, mm. and uh, water a comet far from earth has shed some light on how our planet uh, came to have as much water as we have well one of the big questions is where did earth turn into this beautiful wet oasis that it is today where did all our water come from because when the earth first formed it would have been extremely hot it would have just been barren and rocky so we must have got our water from somewhere and it must have appeared after the earth formed because for a while the earth would have been far too hot to hold on to any water it would have all been water vapor if there was any there at all Mm -hmm. And one of the enduring theories is that this water arrived in the form of asteroid impacts and meteors. Because if you look at the isotopic fingerprint, in other words, there are different types of hydrogen. There's hydrogen, there's deuterium, which is heavier hydrogen, and then tritium. If you look at the ratio of some of these different types of hydrogen, you find that the water that we have here on Earth has a very similar chemical fingerprint to water and volatiles that you find on asteroids. So everyone had concluded asteroids must be the source of the water on Earth. This has actually been turned on its head by a paper in the journal Nature this week. It's by Paul Hartoch, who's at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Mm -hmm. And what he has done is to look at a distant comet. It's a comet which is called P 103P Hartley 2, and it's about 50 times further from the Sun than the Earth is. It's out in a place called the Kuiper Belt. And when they looked using a very powerful space telescope, this is called the Herschel Space Observatory, it's out in orbit, they found that they could see the um, pattern of light coming back in order to read what the chemistry of that comet was. And it's got a water spectrum which is almost identical to the water on Earth. And this puts comets back in the frame. It suggests that rather than just asteroids delivering water to Earth, a lot of comets probably did too. And the, the reason that people had dismissed comets previously is because when they'd looked at comets right out in very deep space, in what's called the Oort cloud, which is about 5,000 times further from the Sun than the Earth is, the comets out there had a very different type of water composition. And so they dis dismissed comets, but it looks like there's actually uh, n a number of different types of comets which would have formed different positions away from the sun in the early solar system, and some of them would have had the right sorts of water ratio to have been the precursor for maybe 70 to a, uh, maybe 90% of the water we have on Earth. So um, comets may have brought more, more water than asteroids did, it, it looks like. All righty, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567, What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist? You can send your uh, questions via SMS as well. Yudi, you're calling me from Sydenham. Hi. Hello, good morning. Mm. Uh, I have a couple... Uh, the first question is actually, if I take a cup of um, uh, uh, water and I put cocoa inside it and I mix it, the cocoa dissolves into the water. Whereas if I take a cup of coffee and I take coffee beans and I mix that in there, the coffee beans do not dissolve and you have to strain them out. What is the difference and why does one actually disintegrate and one doesn't? And can I ask a very uh. quick other question? Um, the other question is, I'm going to try to put this as nice as possible. If you go to the gym and you get a, a towel and the towel's been washed and then you see some colors on the towel that obviously come from... Uh, you know, certain people who maybe not have, have showered very well, and then those towels are washed, but you still see those colors on the towel. The question that I have is, 
are those towels haven't been washed? Has all the bacteria and everything gone out of it? Or do those colors show that you must now go and change the towel and use uh, a different towel? I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two quite, quite different questions. One about things you would like to put in your mouth and things that you would never like mm, to put mm, in your mm. mouth. Let's look at the cocoa and the sugar and the coffee question first. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when something dissolves, what's actually happening is, and let's take sugar and water or salt and water as an example, because that's sort of relevant very, and much easier to get your head around to start with. When you've got something like sugars and salts, water molecules like to interact with those particular chemicals. And salt is a really good example. It's sodium chloride. Those are what are called charged ions. And water loves things which have charges on it it likes to stick to them and so when you have a crystal of salt and you tip it into your tea the water molecules come and they impact or interact with the surface of the crystal and they pluck away from the surface of the crystal these ions and you end up with water molecules which look like miniature boomerangs and they have lots of little gaps between them the gaps between the water molecules will have these ions these sodium na plus or cl minus ions inserted into them and it forms a sort of random solution with these ions throughout the water and they interact with the molecules and they, ch they stabilize the charges and so on so it's because there's a charge there on the water molecule and there's also a charge on the ions that you can actually get the two interacting quite nicely and they dissolve <clears throat> Now, other chemicals are maybe big particles, and they may not want to dissolve because it's not energetically favourable for them to dissolve in this way, because you, you can't physically move enough water molecules out of the way to put them into a dissolved state. Instead, what happens is that they form a suspension, and this is where what you've actually got is not them dissolved and, and surrounded by water molecules but what you've got is the particles floating around in the water now coffee there will be some bits of the coffee that will be soluble and things like caffeine and other molecules in there will dissolve a bit but some of the other particles will not dissolve they will bob around in the water in the same way that, that the particles in milk bob around in a solution so milk is a sort of suspension and so is coffee so that's why some things do dissolve and other things don't mm -hmm. The stained towels in the gym, when something gets stained, it depends on what's actually causing the stain. Some chemicals will actually form such a tight bond to what between themselves or from one to the other that you won't pry them apart. It may also be that the washing hasn't properly cleaned the towel. Um, certain things stick onto the fabric really, really well, and you need usually biological washing powders with enzymes to degrade the bonds, the chemical bonds, in the substances that are giving them the colour and making them stain the clothes. So if you look at most modern washing powders, mm -hmm. what they actually do is use enzymes which will eat away at whatever the chemicals are. Things like fats especially tend to stain quite well, and they so that you put enzymes in the washing powder which break down fats, they're called lipases, and they break apart the fats and they free them from the surface. It might be that they're washing the towels at quite low temperature because um, biological washing powders need a lower temperature and it's also saving money to wash towels at low temperature and it might be mm -hmm. that that's not actually getting the stains off. It sounds like they need a damn good bleaching. <laughs> or just take your own towel. I think that's much better then. Let's go to Chris in Tableview. Hi there, Chris. Hi, uh, morning, Reddy. Morning, mm. Chris. Just a question. How, how do astronauts keep their balance in, in outer space where there's no gravity. Because as a layman, well, most people know there's a semicircular canals in your ears that have got fluid in, and gravity would pull that fluid down. So if you move your head, 
it's it's down and then it can work out where you where you are up or down. But in space there's no gravity. So I imagine this fluid just sloshes around in the canal. So how on earth do they know if they're up or down or whatever? Hello, Chris. I think the answer is that they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right about how you keep your balance. You have in your inner ear three what are called semicircular canals, and this is called your dynamic labyrinth. And these tiny canals, which are, are roughly the size of a penny across, they're very, very small, and they, they are filled with a fluid. They're organised 90 degrees to each other, so you have one which is almost like a hoop going from one ear towards the other. You have another one which is like a hoop laying flat, um, sort of in the same plane as your teeth are, for example, and you have another one which is going like um, a ring from the back of your head through your chin and to the back of your head again. And so you have a set of those on each side, and because they're at 90 degrees to each other, whenever you move your head, the fluid gets left behind a little bit, and this causes it to push on some hairs called kinocilia, which are in the canals, and this fires off nerve impulses, which are fed into your brainstem, and your brainstem decodes all of the relative inputs from the different sides of the head, and it works out which direction you must be moving in. That's all very good when you're moving, but what about when you're not moving? Well, you also have something called a static labyrinth, and there's a bag dangling down called the saccule, and another one which is projecting like a shelf called the utricle, and they actually contain sort of sandy material, which, because gravity pulls on it, is kept in one position, and when you displace yourself, then obviously the force that that's applying because of gravity um, is possible to be resolved into, well, which direction must I be lying in? So you're absolutely right, and that's how it works. That's how you work out where you're moving to and, mm -hmm. and where you're, when you're static, wh what your posture is. But when you're in space, you're in relative free fall towards the Earth all the time because you're in orbit, so you're always falling towards the Earth, but you just keep missing. And that means that there's no net gravitational pull down on your body bits. So one of the things that astronauts do face is this enormous confusion of the senses. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, the training that they go through on the vomit comet, as it's called, these aeroplanes <sighs> that do parabolic dives, um, means that I think mm. probably the high, the most the mo for the most part the majority of people throw up um, and spend a lot of time throwing up. So they get pumped full of antiemetic drugs that tend to stop you confusing your vestibular system too much. Okay. But I think because your brain is quite good at learning, over time you learn to rely more on visual guidance of movement than on what your vestibular system is telling you. So you kind of get used to that rather strange being divorced from gravity and you put far more emphasis on what you can see and the mm. reference points around you rather than on what your ears are telling you isn't happening properly and I think you because the brain is quite good at learning and unlearning things you do slowly learn to respond to a, a different pattern that's very interesting thank you very much Chris for asking the question there's an SMS here from Andre in Pretoria Andre say, uh, wants to know can the naked scientist please comment on the apparent meteor shower on the 8th of October um, I don't know about that one but I can certainly find out there are lots of um, sort of patches of dust and debris in our solar system which the Earth's orbit carries it through at different times of the year and as we go through these patches of dust and debris some of which have been left by comets and things like that some of them are just other things from, from bodies that pass through as we go through this dust obviously some of the items and objects are captured by Earth's gravitational field and they fall in towards the Earth through our atmosphere and as they fall in towards the Earth then they get very hot because of friction 
between the object, which is often moving at thousands of miles an hour, and the Earth's atmosphere. This heats them up and it burns off the surface of the material and that makes the light that you see because they're glowing because they're hot and they also, um, as they're uh, burning off on their surface, they're imparting some chemicals to the hot air that they're creating around themselves and this makes them glow. Alex in Renberg. Yeah, hi, morning, really. Mm. Morning, Chris. What I'd like to know is when you sneeze or cough, it's like a, it's pretty violent on the body. Now, is it possible to do this while you're actually asleep? Um, I don't know if I've sneezed in my sleep. Can't remember. Maybe anyone out there listening can tell us if you've had a sneezing fit in, in your sleep. But I've definitely coughed in my sleep and woken myself up coughing. Yes. And this is because coughing is a protective reflex which is designed to protect your, your airways. And it's actually programmed in your brain stem. This is the part of the nervous system that connects the upper part of your brain to your spinal cord. And in your brain stem, there are lots of clusters of nerve cells that do important jobs without you having any having to think about it at all to keep you alive. So they control blood pressure, they control heart rate, they control how big your pupils are in your eye, where your eyes move to, for example, all that kind of thing. But they also control other important functions like your swallowing reflex and your cough reflex and sneezing. And so when you get a certain pattern of nerve inputs from your lungs signalling there is some irritation in my airways, then it triggers a cough because the, the idea is, well, there must be some kind of irritation. If I cough, I'll clear the irritation and then you feel better. And this is why people ha who are having an asthma attack tend to cough a lot because asthma is an inflammation in the airways and the body interprets that inflammation as being caused by a foreign body which it needs to clear by coughing. Unfortunately, when you cough, you irritate the airways a bit more, and this makes the inflammation worse, and it makes people cough even more, and this makes the airways even more inflamed. It makes it harder for the person to breathe, mm. and the airways swell more, and they feel even more distressed. So I think you can definitely cough in your sleep. I, I don't know if I've sneezed in my sleep. I, I don't know either. I, I suspect someone will say they have. So let's find out. Let us know. Carmen in Midrand. Hi, Weedy. Mm. I just want to know from the Lakers Santos. Yesterday, my daughter had something in her eye, and my husband wanted to blow in the eye to get it out. And I said, no, under no circumstances you blow in anybody's eye because it's dangerous. And we had a debate about this, and he said, no, he doesn't think it's dangerous. And according to me, I think it is caused damage. Is there any truth to that? Um, I think the best way to dislodge a foreign body from the eye is to do what the eye tries to do itself, which is that it has tears, and those tears wash around on the surface of the eye, and the tears contain... Um, your body's own natural immune response and they also contain lubricating chemicals and they wash across the eye to dislodge foreign bodies and infecting things like viruses and bacteria. So the best thing to do is to bathe the eye gently with some salty water. In other words, not really strongly salty water, but water which is mildly salty so it mimics the water that your body has in it because your body is a bag of salty water. And if you just gently bathe the eye that way, you're more likely to dislodge an object gently by moving the eye gently around with the water in contact with the surface of the eyeball. If you blow and prod on eyes, then you're more likely to put viruses and bugs into them and maybe even if there is a foreign body in there, you're more likely to then scratch the eye or push the foreign object further in if you sort of prod around. So it's much better to try and gently dislodge it using a salt water bath.
Yeah. Okay, Bongani Kumalo sends an SMS. I suppose this is in reaction to uh, the the tragic uh, death of Steve Jobs. Uh, there are lots of uh, tributes that are pouring in from outside the Apple store in London. There's a picture here. Uh, admirers flock to Apple stores all over the world to express sorrow at the death of the man who transformed the lives of computer users. So what Bongani wants to know is, um, uh, please ask the naked scientist to tell us more about pancreatic cancer. How can it be cured and how can one keep healthy as a preventative measure yes it's unfortunately a really nasty disease to get um i saw a gentleman with this when i was working in casualty one day and i mean i think his story sort of tells it all he said he'd been going to the doctor for quite a long time with vague abdominal pain and just not feeling right but every time he was examined they couldn't find anything wrong with him and it was only when he finally got desperate and started to have some pain and came into the hospital I was in. And um, I phoned up one of our radiologists and said, could you just scan this chap's tummy just in case? Because there's something about him that isn't quite right. And I got a phone call about five minutes later to say, we've had a look at this guy and, and he has a tumour in his pancreas. Mm. And uh, the thing with pancreatic cancer is that, as this man's story tells you, it very often presents late. In other words you can have tumours there for a really long time before you actually know that there's a problem. And by the time you find out there's a problem, very often they've already grown aggressively and begun to spread locally and to more distant sites in the body. That's called metastasis. So they're very hard to treat for that reason because by the time you find out, it's really tough to then try and get back on top of the tumour. Um, what normally happens with pancreatic cancer is it if it it occurs in the head of the pancreas which is the bit that sits just under the liver sometimes the tumor compress on the bile duct that comes from the liver into the bowel to deliver bile and it blocks it and so the person suddenly develops jaundice for no reason mm. and well they have got reason they've got pancreatic cancer but there's nothing that is obviously wrong with them at first and then when they get scanned you find it so sometimes if a person suddenly develops jaundice and goes yellow this can be why there are many other reasons why people would develop jaundice so i don't think you've got pancreatic cancer if that happens but it's it's certainly one of the reasons it can happen um other times if the tumors occur in the tail of the pancreas which is less common then uh, they're much harder to pick up and they can then present much later there was a paper we discussed here on um on this show about two years ago or a year ago where scientists had actually tracked the evolution of these tumors and they found that by the time someone dies of pancreatic cancer mm. they've often actually had the cancer for more than 20 years wow and for the first say 12 to 15 years of having the cancer it did nothing apart from just grow locally and get a bit bigger and it was only towards the end of their disease that it began to mutate and gain additional genetic changes that enabled it to spread around the mm, body. Mm. But the five-year survival rate for pancreatic cancer is really, really low. Um, it, it, the prognosis is really poor, and unless it's caught very early and you can have a resection of the area, which is curative in some cases, mm -hmm. um, then the prognosis is terrible. And I think Steve Jobs did actually quite well to survive as long as he, he did. did yeah. um, and I suspect the liver transplant he had may have had something to do with the fact that there was local invasion. I mean, obviously we're waiting to see what the, the, the history is there. We may never know. But I suspect that's probably why he ended up having to have a liver transplant as well. Mm. Ruth in Pretoria. Good morning, Rudy. Yes. I have a two-year-old grandson. Mm -hmm. He has very sweaty palms and feet. A actually, at the end of the day, the socks are, are damp. And mm -hmm. he also sweats on the forehead, whether it's winter or, or summer. Okay. Is there something that can be done early? Or All right. Chris? Oh, hi, Ruth. 
Um, well, obviously, it's very dangerous to comment on what someone might or might not have when you can't see them. And we don't know whether they're normal or abnormal. Um, we do make a lot of sweat as a normal person, you have enormous amounts of sweat that come out of your feet. Um, it's something like half a litre of sweat that gets squirted into your socks every day <laughs> by the body. And as you're also shedding about 40,000 skin cells every minute or so, your socks pretty soon fill up with sweat and dead skin and turn into this bacterial banquet, which is why you get stinky feet. But in some people, there is a pathological problem, and especially if it affects the hands. There's a condition called hyperhidrosis, and we don't know exactly why it happens, but the hands and the sweating over the body is actually supplied by a branch of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, and you squirt the certain nerve transmitter chemicals in off of these sympathetic nerves, and they go onto sweat glands, and they make the sweat glands turn on. And in some people, there is a, a real excess of sweating, probably because of overactivity in these nerves. And one treatment is to deactivate the nerves, and they can do that by a, a small incision in the neck. And in some people, this is curative. I, I think you'd certainly not want to do that in some someone who's so young. I think mm. you should just keep an eye on it. And if it does show signs of becoming a problem later, because it's, it's nothing more than just an inconvenience. It's not going to be harmful in any way to have sweaty palms and sweaty feet. feet yep. But it might obviously be personally inconvenient. And there are things that can be done to help later if that turns out to be the problem. But I won't worry about it too, too much now. Okay. Chris, thank you very much. We'll chat to you next week again. Pleasure. Take Ta -ta. care. See you soon. Bye-bye.